Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse Podcast. I'm your host, Chance, and I hope that Friday the 13th solar eclipse was just the right amount of gnarly for all of you out there. While the sky may be falling for many of the chicken littles out there in normie world, I'm glad that you're here with me right now in pursuit of new perspectives and maybe even some answers to the big questions in life. What is the world? What forces shaped our current civilization? How long have we been here? And is everything going to be okay? For those who've been with me over the last couple of years tracking down the evidence within mythology and language that demonstrates the existence of a worldwide interconnected civilization with incredible aptitude for architecture and astronomy, one of the most important aspects of our journey is the highly important ability of being able to disprove the mosaic history that the corrupt institutions, the royal bloodlines and the slimy reptilian-like papacy use their priestly, pre, using their priestly allegories and scriptures as a verification for their pseudo-divine right to repeatedly stomp the proverbial boot into humanity's collective neck. And their entire system is dependent on the messiah master-slave, and savior-saved societal story repeated up and down the fractal from the individuals getting poisonous cowpokes for the good of everyone else to the I-support-the-current-thing collective mass insanity. So the logical conclusion when looking at the cooked books of history being forged before our very eyes is that, well, the publicized predicaments of our past are likely to be just as altogether sketchy. This is where our honored returning guest comes into the picture like a whirlwind of well-aimed skepticism with a plethora of content covering many centuries of status quo stories. Michelle Gibson pierces the veils of illusion with video after video, simply analyzing what we've been told and poking that hole in the grand conspiracy's curtain a little bigger with each swing. It's been two years since we last collaborated, and I must say, time just got the better of me as our two podcasts in 2021, where we discussed mud floods, resets, and the so-called great philanthropist's role in writing our recent history, certainly left me wanting more. 
But as they say, better late than never. So I'm glad and I'm so I'm sure glad that uh, we'll, we'll be able to put our heads together tonight on topics like the hijacking of Earth's energy, energy grid system, the hidden abilities of our powerful ancestors and the evidence for a very different truth to our world's history as revealed in artificial geology and Grandoy's architecture. We'll feel like I think we'll feel like we're just picking up where we left off as if it's been no time at all. So check the show notes for links to Michelle's YouTube channel, her website, piercingtheveilofillusion.com. Info on how you can sign up for the extended version of this episode and the myriad of other mutually beneficial ways you can support this podcast with my sincere gratitude. And now everybody, please take a deep breath and prepare to cannonball off the high dive as we begin the adventure with the great revealer of wonders and spell great breaker of shady histories, the profound and prolific Michelle Gibson. Welcome back to Interverse. It's so great to have you again. Oh, I muted there. Welcome. It's great to be back, Chance. And it's interesting because after the two-year pause in our collaboration, a lot has been happening in terms of the research that I've been doing and the rabbit holes that I've been going down and what I've been finding and able to piece together. And, you know, it's just, I just feel like this um, first, this urgency to get it out. Um, I do have a few physical limitations and one being as I'm getting old and my eyes have mild cataracts, which don't prevent me from seeing, but the eye strain is pretty bad. So I've got about four hours of good time for thinking and then, um, so I, I, I get it out as fast as I can. And it's really exciting because I've gone back to some old research that I've done to bring it forward. And all of the things that I've learned in the in-between, I'm adding to that. And so it's, it's getting deeper. It's fleshing out. And in order to get new information, you just have to let go of everything that you've been taught. I'm speaking for myself on that, but that goes for all of us. Because when you really get down to the nitty gritty of what we're told in our historical narrative, it's just garbage. (laughs) It's garbage with critical thinking. And that's why they removed critical thinking from the curriculum around 1850, 1851, when the Rockefellers were setting up the American educational system. They just wanted obedient workers who could read, write, do arithmetic, um, answer yes or no, or multiple choice. Um, They weren't looking for geniuses or superstars. Order followers. (laughs) They wanted order followers. You know, they would promote the, the brighter students up the ranks and you know, into their higher educational indoctrination program. And, um, you know, so you could graduate within that that educational system. But, you know, they're promoting, you know, blatant lies. And I'm not prepared to say that without backing it up. And so I've got a lot of research on my website, piercingtheveilofillusion.com. And I turn all my blog posts into videos. And we live and work in old world architecture all over the world. It's in North America. It's in Australia. And they had to 
kick the original people back to the Stone Age in order to create the new narrative and claim credit for everything. And um, I absolutely believe there was a cataclysm. I believe it was recent within the last couple hundred years at the most that that was the sinking of Atlantis and Atlantis was worldwide, the advanced civilization and that they, the voyages of exploration, particularly of the early 1800s to about 1850, particularly were going out into the post-cataclysmic world in order to claim land, see what was there, see what was left, see what everything looked like, and then superimpose their new system over the existing architecture, taking control of all the resources and all the people, instituting colonization and plantations and slavery for their new economic system. And it wasn't just the individuals identified as slaves who were the original people. The slavery system was imposed on everybody in the system, a sense of a, a wage slavery situation. And um, it's particularly evident in the mill system, textile mills in mining, um, where people were paid barely enough to live. And well, then one they, way where I feel like track this down myself is in the the feudal system, if you will, right? I mean that we're basically in neo feudalism. It hasn't changed that much. It <laughs> I'm hasn't. Not, I'm not pro like communism or anything, but capitalism is a type of um, as it's practiced, like you know the big money owners. It's basically neo feudalism. And to me, what's most relevant about the feudal system is its roots as an ecclesiastical system. That it had its it, divisions are based on like uh, basically papal decree and uh, church churches that are set up in on the ley line system that are built on top of more ancient sites where seemingly the exact same thing has been going on for a long time and maybe like just the the branding has changed of the world empire or you know somebody took over and and started using the system for more nefarious purposes. And that's what happened. The existing system was positive for all. It was harmonious, benefited all life. I believe not only on earth, but also beyond earth, um, that it was set up as a a balanced um, musical and scientific instrument that was in perfect alignment with the heavens. And that the frequencies, the solfeggio frequencies generated in these cathedrals and churches and, you know, even train stations, the older train stations have uh, cathedral rose windows, which are the same idea as solfeggio frequency shapes. Um, Carillons, bell towers are, you know, super tall bell, and they would be broadcasting out to the cosmos because why would they be that tall? if they weren't having some kind of function and that everything was kept in balance um, this way. And um, what I see is evil saw a way to crash the party. Um, I believe they caused this cataclysm through the grid system through, you know, like I said, within the last couple hundred years and um, they are not benevolent, benevolent whatsoever. Uh, they are parasitic. They feed on negative 
human emotional states, human energy, both literally and figuratively. And they just came in and rigged the system to benefit them. And they've been stealing from, you know, the original civilization and humanity ever since. And again, we're not talking a long time, a couple of hundred years at the most. Um, so, you know, with what I was saying with this, you were m- mentioning this feudal in nature, which I would agree with, is that people have been enslaved and don't, don't even know it because <laughs> that's not what they're called. But um, like throughout Appalachia in these mill towns where there was a company town and people were paid in scrip and they couldn't go anywhere else and the company owned everything, the churches, the schools, the recreational venues. And they're there until the resources are exhausted and then they go somewhere else overseas. Paid in script and brainwashed in scripture. <laughs> I'm sure there's a connection because um, they've been mocking us this whole time. Um, and then they leave these you know, poor communities that don't have any other economy high and dry. And some of them have survived with um, like tourism and things like that, or the wealthy come in and buy up the land like again in the Appalachians, but that whole system was everywhere and the workers were treated horribly. Um, Even where unions came in, it was a fight because the wealthy owners did not want to give up their power or their, their money. And then they eventually will move it to, to South America where Coca-Cola can have a private army and just kill everybody that doesn't want to work or doesn't want the conditions that they're offered. And I don't know that example specifically, but that's kind of the same idea. And it was here as well, where there would be striking miners and they would bring in the army or some branch of the military to put the strike down. Um, people would be killed in mining disasters, whether it was coal mining or iron ore or, you know, wherever, whatever part of the country you were in where the resource was. Um, and because of the brainwashing, you know, and holding up the United States particularly as a beacon of freedom and uh, human rights and constitution and bill of rights and all of our freedoms where what we're experiencing right now is what they had planned for us. You know, we were kind of the fatted calf, you know, keep us fat, dumb and happy and distracted and drunk (laughs) and drugged and watching football or, you know, whatever sports. You got to have consumers for the exploitation system to work. And we played that role here in the States for a long time. But I want to I want to actually shift back over to talking about. See, I want to really weave a tapestry with you because you brought up the possibility of the catastrophic events being initiated on purpose. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think I might have some pieces to that puzzle for you. But first, before we can get there, I really want to build that out and have you talk to us more about what is the Earth energy grid? You know, what are the ley lines in your point of view and maybe where you're at in terms of how they might have been manipulated in this hijack? Okay, and I do want to um, mention that I I went off on that tangent for a reason. And 
uh, you had mentioned, you know, the metaphor of, you know, the iron boot kind of image. And Jack London wrote a book called The Iron Heel. And he was a socialist. And Jack London and Mark Twain and Charles Dickens and and um, Grapes of Wrath guy, John Steinbeck, they were all influencers of our historical narrative. So they were figureheads to set the background story and narrative for this world that we live in. And in replacing the original history, which is very positive and which has to do with the earth grids and the ley lines, because that's how I got to where I am today, was awareness of the ley lines and where they went and tracking them. And so that does tie into it. And the other aspect is we happen to be living in exciting times when we get to see what was planned play out and something new come in. And so I've been kind of riding this this wave or the crest of the wave of this high level of awareness of the original civilization and what happened to it and who did it and, you know, exactly what has happened here and having the ability to write and, and get it out. I mean, I think that's the best, biggest thing for me is I can convey the information. And I, I very much see myself as a well-prepared vessel and that it's not just me, that I am um, receiving help and guidance from the other side. Um, light and beings that want this information to come back out so people can make different choices knowing that we've been lied to. I know the feeling. I barely plan any of what I do here. It just comes to me mostly. Right. <laughs> it arrives. Yeah. So, so that's been a part of it. And, um, and knowing that there's a better future ahead. And that's another reason I do this. I really believe that's where we're going to a better future. And that uh, in riding the crest of the wave, I'm seeing all this craziness play out on one side. And I don't watch mainstream media or the news, but I do follow alternative social media on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. I'm seeing heart-based things come in. In a way that is just beautiful. And, And I think part of it is that the people that I connect with um exhibit that quality of understanding oneness and our natures as spiritual beings and as love but knowing that that's also where we're going now i don't necessarily have it worked out in my mind you know how these two worlds <laughs> play out together but I've had opportunities in my life or and, and I'm having some coming up that I know are completely heart based. And um and that's been part of my journey too, is in coming into the awareness that I'm sharing, I've met a lot of heart based people. The capital T truth is that all things serve good. Even When evil is intended, good is served eventually by the evil. It can't be any other way. That's just the nature of existence. And and I do believe we're seeing that play out right now. And and we can talk about that. But let me share um, a tattered map 
And, you know, those of you who might be familiar with me from past interviews with Chance or um, other interviews or my own channel and, and website, um, my original research started with finding the uh, Merkaba when I connected cities and places in North America. There we go. Apologize for that. So by the time I found this in 2016, I think it was in January of 2016, I knew enough about sacred geometry to know what a star tetrahedron was. And I knew enough about the original civilization from watching other researchers to know that the ancients, there were things that lined up around the world. I knew that. And I was traveling with some friends and going to some ancient sites. They're not called ancient sites, but that's what they were. Mount Magazine in Arkansas was one of them. And I had this next to my dining room table, and I'm looking at it, studying it, and I'm noticing cities lining up in lines. So when I found the star tetrahedron and I extended the lines out, I wrote down all the places in spreadsheets. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list, but it's about 14 pages of cities and places and alignments, either linear or in a circle. And I believe this civilization was built out along the lines of sacred geometry. And I believe these lines are ley lines of groomed electromagnetic energy. And these ley lines or grid lines are connected to other grids. So there's our personal Merkaba around our light bodies. There's the same shape. The earth has the same shape. The you know the universe has the same shape. And we're all connected that way. And you know, it's a deeper subject than that because that information's been removed. But when you start digging, <laughs> and I've got friends that have gifts in that area to where you can find celestial alignments in the literature of the say like the 1600s, late 1500s, 1600s, they've encoded it in there. And they've encoded a lot of information in the literature of the late um, 1500s through about the 1700s. Shakespeare, you know, other, probably the King James Bible, because that came up during that time. What I've um, done in the last two years since we spoke is a whole lot of research and, and episodes about the astrotheology or the alignments and stars and constellations that the scriptures and mythologies of the world are all allegorical to. That might not be the only thing that they're allegorical to. They're layered, but the sky is definitely, you know, I, I consider the sky to be in that fractal sense, the entirety of the collective psyche. The sky is the whole, <laughs> the whole thing. And when I first started in my understanding of the earth grid, which again, I believe is based on sacred geometry, is that that's our collective consciousness as well. So when the controllers have done their false flags, they love to do them on PowerPoints, nodal points, ley lines. They want to do it where the collective consciousness will be the most affected by whatever it is they're trying to do. And that's been the case since they took over 
of major events happening on major power, major points on this grid system. So, so I, well, you go ahead. <laughs> so I was going to say they knew about it because that's what I saw when I started doing my early, my earliest work was tracking these alignments. And that was where I got the big picture starting to come out. And that's how I was able to pull even more information um, because I'm a writer first. The speaking part is not second nature and I've gotten better at it through practice, but it's still not my, my first love. But writing is and, and doing the research and being able to pull out the relevant point that I want to get across or that I think is important um, and put it in a way that is understandable and comprehensible and compelling. I do, do a lot of comparative pictures of the same thing in China that you find in Oklahoma. Um, things like that to show the patterns and the repeating patterns. And it's in the repeating patterns that you find truth. It's in reading between the lines that you find truth because they've removed the truth from the written record and replaced it with garbage. You know, <laughs> I mean, literally, and I'm, you know, you know, sorry <laughs> if that sounds like a bit, bit much to handle but you're talking about how charles dickens was sort of uh painting the picture of what life was going to be like for that society now the picture that we're getting painted is homer simpson so (laughs) garbage Uh is definitely the case but that time period of like 1800 to 1850 especially like right in the middle of that there is some incredible work that was being done by people with the exact same type of mentality as you and me that has just been swept under the rug you know, one one author that I champion all the time is Godfrey Higgins in 1820-ish. He put out this massive tome called Anacalypsis, where he's doing the comparative study of all the world's mythologies, languages, religions that he had access to, and especially uh, sacred sites near where he was in Britain. So like the, the Druids and the Celts. And that type of thing gives you like why I love this book is just as you're talking about showing a pattern that you see in China and then showing us somewhere in North America, once you have the keys to the mythos and exactly the patterns that keep showing up over and over again in the mythos, that gives you not only a nice way to understand nature that the philosophers of old had, but then it allows you to recognize that, oh, Everywhere, all the cultures of the world are telling the exact same story over and over again. It's just dressed up a little differently or you need to have the linguistic chops to see the pattern there. But it's always the same pattern. So but these type of guys, you know, at their time, they're shot down. They're laughed out of the room by the other so-called experts who are either true believers of whatever their faith is, usually Christianity or uh actual agents of this, the state or the crown or the papacy. Uh, so I like, you know, I, there are, there are still breaths of, of fresh air and glasses of pure water out there to be found in the literature of the past, but you gotta, you know, I, I don't even like to do research on mythology, uh, religion and language from anything in our century or, you know, earlier than 1900, because it starts to get so Disneyfied. Right. And and that's an excellent point, 
because it speaks to what's happening up to this day or has been happening. I do think the tide is turning. But the people that were trying to get out truth, preserve truth, you know, give humanity better information were silenced, vilified, jailed, (laughs) killed. And that has never changed. So the the um, the writers of the new narrative, you know, and when I hear histories written by the victors, it's like, yeah, true. But is it a victory when they've lied, cheated, and stolen? <laughs> you know? um, I don't see it as a victory. But they came out um, ahead of the game because they blindsided everybody on the earth. And I'll get to the cataclysm I think happened. And they were able to come in and um, impose their new world and new system. Um, It also included incorporation, you know, turning companies into people, turning people into companies. Uh, You know, the whole idea of the straw man and, you know, the debt slavery, how people became the collateral for the national debt instead of gold and silver like in the 30s causing people to identify with the artificial and disassociate from the real that's basically the simplest way to put it is the whole thing bottom to top is is a again another type of fractal of that whole corporate personhood thing that systemically people are identifying with fiction and rejecting reality Further and further and further. It's the whole Baudrillard concept of the hyper real and that people are so invested in the hyper real that when reality is, you know, poking them in the eye, they they don't even realize it or, you know, they completely uh, just blank. Like they can't see the actual truth right in front of their eyes. And that was really well established during cooties. But then a lot of people snapped out of it as well in the last few years. Right. But that whole idea of putting masks on us and on others has been in place for quite some time. Right. And your corporate identity is called a person. And the Latin word for for a mask is persona. (laughs) So it's like all the same thing, either on your face or on paper. It's all there's paper on your face. Your name is on a piece of paper. And we're identifying with, you know, that which is artificial. Uh, or not we, but like a lot of people were in that. And I really, really believe, and this is a lot of research, you know, I'm, none of this is overnight stuff, that historical figures like King Henry VIII, Queen Elizabeth, King James VI and I were figureheads that rolled out this brand new narrative, especially King James. But King Henry was in the there and well as well and then um queen elizabeth was behind a lot of the new stuff um and then there were early plays called masks m-a-s-q-u-e spelled like masks that were a form of courtly entertainment that were performed for kings and queens in their court and there's a lot of stuff hidden away in those uh, ben johnson particularly and there's some others um, where they're high, they're you know putting the real history in these 
in these masks, which were short performances. But, and, I, and I have a friend that pointed me in this direction. Um, but there's a lot of truth tucked away in, in the masks themselves. But there's a lot of absolute craziness in the narrative that we're told about those individuals. I mean, it's almost like a parody. But there was some serious stuff going on in their reigns that pertain to us today. So like um, King Henry VIII, you know, the, the six wives of Henry VIII, Masterpiece Theater, and, you know, that's the big thing about his life story and then his weight when he was an old man, um, even though he was like in his 50s when he was said to have died. Um, the dissolution of the monasteries took place during his reign between 1536 and 1541. It was during that time that monasteries, nunneries, abbeys were ripped apart. I mean, Glastonbury is a really good example. There's not much left but stones. And I don't know, have you been to Hahatanka Park, Chance? Where's that one at? Hahatanka. It's in Missouri. I feel like I have been there. I don't think it's been, I think it's been a while. Well, yeah, what you're talking about, King Henry VIII, it was a double coup de grace because not only are they able to justify the destruction of a bunch of old world architecture under the guise of the shift from Catholic to Protestant, but you also have the papal forces or whatever the, you know, the overarching control group behind the scenes doing the divide and conquer and pulling the strings of both Protestant and Catholic just to cause the rift in society needed to shift to the next phase of what they wanted everybody to do. It's the classic problem, reaction, solution, controlled opposition. Both sides are actually working towards the same goal. Although the people playing for the sides don't necessarily know that. If it even happened, if it even happened. Yeah. <laughs> but the so, story was still so, adequate to cause the whole like continual division between Catholics and Protestants in, in England for, for all time. So it, it was effective. You know, again, I, I seriously question the, the veracity. You know, did this actually happen before a certain point after a certain point, And let's say sometime in the 1700s, I'm just throwing that out there. History became real with the new characters written in. At some point, there's a lot of backfill. So these guys might be backfill, but they are powerful in our historical narrative. So dissolution of the monasteries in England between 1536 and 1541. The Jesuits were formed by Papal Bull in 1540. So they came around the same time period. One other point about the dissolution of the monasteries. That is where the genealogical records were kept. And they were also places that um, noble families uh, you know, had title to wealth and other things. So if it happened, that was taken and they had to bring in their new nobility. And that's what they were doing. The College of Arms became the repository of gene genealogical records, particularly of 
noble families, pedigreed families. And they had the sole authority for coats of arms, which became very important with um, business incorporation because companies started to get coats of arms. The right to bear arms. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not it's just connected. about guns. It may not even be about guns, but <laughs> it's like with everything else. Nobody knows that. So um, armorial bearings are important to the story. And he set up, Henry VIII set up a court of wards and liveries that was responsible for managing the estates of orphaned heirs. So somewhere all these orphaned heirs came up. The motto of the College of Arms is diligent and secret. And for years, they went around the British Isles to record genealogical records and histories. And you start having new nobility come in. Titles like First Earl of, First Duke of. And they were based on the original nobility, the original people from this civilization that was advanced. That got relegated to the dustbin of history that nobody knows about, but you can still find clues. So, so that system was brought in the um, the system of royal charters, uh, royal prerogative. So, um, the king would issue a royal charter, and that would start a company or a colony um, by royal prerogative, which was the God given right of monarchs to make decisions that became law, very similar to a papal bull, where the Pope's word is un- infallible. So they're, you know, putting out all of these declarations, you know, by the power vested in me to make all of these rulings, you know, which in effect is their green light to go forward and take the lands and enslave the people and become wealthy beyond their wildest dreams because they're so busy shipping galleons of gold, you know, in the case of the Spanish um, from the Americas. And this is the history we're taught. So it's like normal for us. But when you look at it, it's, like, it's not normal. <laughs> you know, They've left a whole bunch of the story out. And I, I found missing pieces of the story following these, these line, ley lines. And so I'm going to share my screen real quick. Um, I did uh, pull up a couple of things based on... Some of the questions that you gave me, I'm going to start here, but I just want to show on my website. No, actually, I guess I, so let me, let me start here since it's what I had pulled up because you had a question about obelisks. Three in particular, the needles of Cleopatra. Can you see everything okay? Yeah, I'm looking good. Okay, so before I go forward. Yeah, for everyone out there, I was wondering in our email exchange about the obelisks that were said to have been shipped to their places. Huge stone obelisks supposedly put on a boat and drove across the sea and then they just set it up in their new spot as opposed to the question of were they already here? Were they already there? So um, one of them, the ones that you're referencing is the, Cleopatra's Needle in Paris. And the Place de la Concorde, 
I remember from history classes being the place where a lot of people were beheaded during the French Revolution. So this particular obelisk was said to have marked the entrance to the Luxor Temple in Egypt, and it was gifted to France the ruler, by the ruler of Egypt and Sudan in 1828. And so in 1833, it was put on a boat. And... You know, one of the things that's important about just the story right there from the beginning is Luxor in Egypt was the Phoenician capital at one point. And the Phoenicians had the apparently a worldwide seafaring empire going on, or at least a mercantile empire. They called it Thebes back then. It was Egyptian Thebes, but it's what is modern day Luxor. So to have the, uh, the obelisk supposedly from there is like, even if it didn't actually get brought from there, or if it did, it's the story of it is signaling to people in the know of like, we're the, the new Phoenicians. We're the, boss of this big mercantile empire. And the Phoenicians were part of this worldwide civilization um, that I'm seeing multiple empires that weren't fighting each other in different parts of the world. So that's where you get Tartaria from. North, and that was in Asia. Barbaria was Africa, North Africa. The Ouachita Empire was in North America. The Moroccan Empire was in North America. The um, Ottoman Empire was in Turkey. The Mughal Empire was in India. Um, that was all part of the same civilization that goes far back in time. So that's where the Moor comes from. It comes from Lemuria, and which is Mu, Moor. And I'm seeing that same advanced civilization was the same as Atlantis as it evolved. And that same Atlantean civilization was the same civilization that built some of the things that I'm going to show you here all over the earth. So, you know, it gets confusing because of how the information has been conveyed because things were a lot more integrated and harmonious and, you know, people weren't at odds with each other or they would not have created been able to create this beautiful civilization hmm. and so in, I, the, in the mythos of this ancient civilization they have certain root words that are common to like every language i've ever looked at there are certain roots like mar or more mare referring to the sea and referring to the goddess so if you've probably heard the breakdown of like israel being Isis Ra El, like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the triple God encoded in the name. But Lemuria is actually a name just like that. It's El, which is Lord, and Mor, or Mur, which is the, <laughs> you know, the goddess of the sea. And then Yah, which is the, the God. So it's all right there in the name. And then, you know, Murex is the name of the, the shellfish that was the royal purple dye derived from that the Phoenicians were trading in that only existed in you know, parts of the world that they had access to is including in the Caribbean, but I'm getting into some digressions here, but like those names, you know, once you have some of those keys of the, the root words in all the languages and what they mean, and you kind of start doing word splitting on names of other places, you know, and also it just becomes very suspect how there are places with the same name in the ancient world in very different parts of 
you know, just like we have like names of Egyptian uh, cities in the United States, that's in the ancient world too. You'll see a bunch of places called like Solimon and Iona or Yona, <laughs> and it goes on and on. There's repeated names, and that's more evidence of the uh, the spreading out of a single system or or you know a widely adopted type of culture. Right, and they, you know, when they brought us to new narrative, whoever was behind writing it, whether it was Scaliger, um, Jesuits, whoever was behind it, um, they didn't invent the new history from scratch. So there's a lot that is built upon real people. And they just needed some way to explain how everything came into existence. So we have these clear patches needles as a great example, because what they want us to believe is this one and two other 200 and over 200 ton obelisks were shipped from Egypt. In this case, in the um, 1833. And they even put a little picture on the base of it as to how it was supposed to have been erected at that spot. And, you know, you see pictures of Paris that look like this. And there's a lot of great photos on the Internet um, of these historic cities and places. You just have to type mud flood in to get a lot of pictures. But then when you're looking at specific places, you find the gigantic architecture, you know, beautiful architecture, and then the, you know, dirt-covered street, the tiny people compared to the buildings, and not many of them compared to the area in the picture, like in this example. So there's just a lot of really um, interesting things that come up when you start looking at what the narrative says versus what's actually there. And um, I'm gonna, I've got two more to show you. I just had to get out of there to... So this is in London. Same idea. Uh, Cleopatra's Needle in London. This one weighed 10 tons less than the other one in Paris. Um, so this was two, 240 tons. You've got two sphinxes on either side of it. And same idea, same ruler. This was gifted to the United Kingdom in 1819 to commemorate the British victories at the Battle of the Nile, which is 1798 and the Battle of Alexandria in 1801. And we're told that the gift was originally declined because it was so expensive to ship it. And I found two versions about how it got there. One is this guy, Sir William James Erasmus Wilson, paid 10,000 pounds to ship it. And I suspect Punch was probably one of those magazines too, the social information influencer of the day. So that's well over a million pounds in modern <laughs> money. <laughs> well over. And then um, 
there was another version of the story saying that the British public raised 15,000 pounds to have it shipped in 1877. So either way, it got there about the same time, 1877. And it had to be dug out of the sand. (laughs) And there was a shipping container that was made for it. It was pulled by tugboat. And it wasn't a perfect journey. There were problems along the way. But when it got to London, it was re-erected on the banks of the River Thames. You know, another, you know, pretty detailed picture of how they got it standing. And and just a few other examples before I go to New York. Um, Well, I just want to add, too, and you mentioned this in one of your videos, that the River Thames also used to be known as the River Isis. So you've got an Egyptian obelisk getting put up right next to Isis, the river. And this is something I, I don't have like uh, notes in front of me of other examples, but it's something that I come across in my research time and time again is that the ancient Celts, the ancient Gauls, the ancient Britons, the, uh, the Egyptians, the in like the Hindus, numerous, numerous uh, tribes from ancient history, they're, whoever their main god or goddess was that they felt like was the benefactor of their people was also, they named the the river that they lived on or, or next to that name. So the river was the god or was the goddess. Like the, the what we call the Nile in Egypt was Osiris to them, was literally their top god. And that happens over and over again in the uh, research that I've done on the ancient mythos and and religions of the old system. So I was wondering if that's coming up for you repeatedly too, gods and goddesses being named for the rivers being named for them and then switched up later. I mean, to a certain extent, I found that example of the river Isis not too long ago um, when I was doing some research. It was actually on Australia, but the trail led me there. And I think it was Oxford either Oxford or Cambridge, where around the turn of the century, anyway, it was still called ISIS. Um, I do find that you you do find uh, like Apollo and Athena, um, not necessarily with rivers, but streets, um, things like that. So, Well, hell, Bacchus. <laughs> Bacchus is a, a, an earlier version of like Hercules and then later becomes Jesus and Krishna are types of Bacchus. Bacchus is uh, the word Bach means stream or river in German. There's a lot of clues in place names. Uh, you have the Moors in Great Britain that are Heath, Heatherlands, you know, barren, things like that. Um, you have other places, the Washita Mountains in Arkansas. Um, I was recently gifted this old Greek Bible. It's just the New Testament or just the Gospels. And can you see that? Jesus is on an anchor instead of a cross. And this is from, I believe, the early 1800s is when this was this little book was published. So there's definitely like a long tradition connecting the mariners, the, you know, ships, seafarers with the religious institution or the priest class that I wanted to, you know, make that point about for everyone to have their pattern recognition activated on that particular thing. 
you know, and it just goes to speak to how important everybody's different gifts are in this journey. Um, you know, chance with the areas that you're interested in and drawn to study. Um, I am uh, tuned into the Earth's grid and the original civilization and know how to interpret what I'm seeing. Um, and that's led me into the timeline research and deconstructing that. And, you know, again, the pattern recognition is really important. Um, everybody doing this work has something special to bring. And it may not always fit together smoothly or drive exactly, but it all has benefit when you're looking for the truth because the truth is in there somewhere. And so we all have different pieces to bring to the table. And I just wanted to give this example of a comparison between the, um, let me figure out where I was, <laughs> the Victoria Tower at Westminster Palace in London. So this is on the grounds of where the British Parliament buildings are. So that's on the left, and you have the Plummer Building of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota on the right. And immediately you have architectural similarities. You've got the onion domes on both buildings up here. You have the three windows in a row. Um, when you look yeah, at the, Yeah, like the triptych style, the triple windows. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have a lot of double windows and, you know, even four windows. Um, but the triptych is fairly common. And then when you compare the Buxton Memorial Fountain at the Victoria Tower Gardens, so that's right here, with the, the, you know, the beautiful mosaic of the Plummer Building at the top, you have something very similar going on here. And again, talking about pattern recognition. Now, the Plummer Building um, was said to have opened in 1928 and the Victoria Tower was said to have been completed in 1860. So 1860 and 1928. Either way, those are fairly recent years for this style of just incredibly beautiful architecture. And and you can find the same kinds of things in Moorish Spain as an example to compare these two. So um, it's, you know, it doesn't make sense in the narrative, neither does shipping a 240-ton obelisk. <laughs> but they have to have some way to explain it to take credit in our narrative. Um, and then you get to uh, New York City, and you have... At the um, Museum of Metropolitan Museum of Art in Central Park, and let's you know let's look at that building there for a second. <laughs> um, 
you know, just a gorgeous building. And <laughs> on the end, that's what it looks like on the inside. And it was said to have opened in 1880. You know, huge archways and ceilings. And then behind the Museum of Art is the New York Cleopatra's Needle. And it was said to have been shipped from Egypt to Upper New York Harbor. And this one is kind of in between, 244 ton. And then it took almost four months to move it from the Hudson River to its present location. So the image is, you know, the mode of transportation to get it there is described as laborers inching the obelisk on parallel beams aided by roll boxes and a pile driver. You know, so they're working hard on these stories. This is the Museum of Natural History across from the Art Museum in Central Park. And, you know, again, the size is just incredible. And, of course, you've got the New York Giants for a football franchise there. And uh, Of course, you know, the New York Giants. <laughs> and you find, you know, giant bones and skulls. And, you know, that's definitely been hidden. You know, I, I hear there were giant skeletons all over the place in the 1800s, and the Smithsonian came in and scooped them up and either put them in the basement and, or shipped them out to the middle of the ocean and sank the ship. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard both. <laughs> it's so hard to know the the truth about some of this stuff because, you know, there's one part of me that's like, and I, and I think it could be some of both things, you know, maybe some of the buildings that we are examining or people like that do the work that you do are examining, have a very different story and reality to how they got there. And then I think there's also some degree of, you know, I'm not saying that this is you, but some of the community that looks at this, this architecture and the claims that they make it in a way it, it's kind of disempowering i feel to imagine how like oh we could have never have built that or who who could have built that you know it's the whole like magical um ancient aliens ancestor thing where I, where i want i guess what i want to point out is like i really want the perspective to hold true that we're actually just a little bit of knowledge lacking away to return to that type of grand and amazing architecture so my, yeah, I, I absolutely believe humans built everything and that if you had a show named ancient humans on mainstream television, it wouldn't last. That's um, true. Do you remember a program? I think it was from the eighties called the Phoenix. No, it's a little before my time. It's on YouTube. If you, if you, if you go on YouTube, there's, there were like about like a handful of episodes. And then it was gone about an ancient human with super abilities that woke up like it was like one of those. Um, what do you call it when they're suspended in time or whatever? Oh, I just looked it up and the logo has got like the triangle with the with sort of an almost tri triangle with an eye in the middle type of deal going on. The it was Phoenix a has been a symbol of this cult that I've been talking about, too, like the. Phoenix has the same exact root as the the Finn or Phoenician, 
you know, it's, it's a perennial philosophy that just keeps being reborn. And then like in symbology, the Phoenix is the sun that dies and is reborn every day at night and every year. And then possibly in a larger cycle. And when we get over to hour two, I really want to get into more about like some possibilities of what the world is outside of the mainstream description of a ball flying through an infinite empty void of nothingness with no meaning and to sort of warm you up to that. So one of the things that is new for me since we've last talked, I, I think I was starting to get into it, but now I have two years of lots and lots of experience under my belt. So you mentioned the nested energy field nature of our reality or like nested toroidal fields that our bodies have a electromagnetic field or an aura that is a microcosm of larger fields that the earth has got going on. So the earth itself is probably one giant one. And then there's probably even, you know, shells within shells within shells that are smaller between the scale of us and the entire realm. But the ley lines are the ley lines to some degree are our ability to map out how these shells are flowing and intersecting in the from the micro to the macrocosm. Now, I've been involved with a practice called biofield tuning for the last couple of years where you use sound and I use the self-edgeo frequencies, particularly tuning forks to find stuck energy in people's energy field and where they where the stuck energy is at like in the front back left right up down tells you what type of experience belief or stuck emotion or expectation about life whatever it is that is in some way self-limiting um where it's at in their energy field tells you what it is so it's it's very wild but like i will <laughs> like I just had a client um, yesterday and I hit this pocket of stuck energy in a certain part of their field. And I was like, okay, there's a self-esteem issue here and you're about two years old. So it's kind of a bizarre time to be taking this on, but it's around feeling like an outsider. There's a little bit more to it. And then she's like, oh, I moved to Libya when I was two years old <laughs> because my dad was from there, <laughs> you know? And so like, you can find really specific stuff. She felt like an outsider at that time. And my point being with all this is our energy field is our mind. So our bodies are in our mind, not our mind in our body, our memories, the record of all of our experiences in that energy field, which if we're able to experience that and demonstrate that with ourselves in our microcosm, then what does that tell us about the ley line energy system of the earth that there's something to do with mind and memory and emotion and belief in this energy grid system of the entire realm. So the manipulation of the energy grid, <laughs> the manipulation of that energy grid could very well influence what people are able to remember or even implant memories in a sense into people, not to mention the fact that disturbances in a, a human being's energy field when left long enough manifest in health problems for that person. And so we see the health problems getting worse and worse for humanity too. I think all this stuff is in the mix and, uh, you know, I want to go deeper into that in hour two. 
and that would be my intuitive understanding. Um, I think you probably have a lot more practical experience with, you know, the work that you're doing as a healer. Um, but what I will say is that goes both ways. You know, it can definitely impact, you know, change and impact the collective with things that have been done to manipulate it and lower our vibration. But the same thing holds true. You can do this. You could probably do the same thing with the earth grids that you're doing with people and clear that energy. And we can do that. You know, we're way more powerful than we've been taught in the human mind. So you can, you know, make a difference if you set the intention to work with the earth's energy grid to heal, heal it. Um, so absolutely. It's, I'm sure it's affected us about what we're experiencing now in the world. But the same thing, you know, it can be reversed. It's not anything that's set in stone by any means. Not at all. Not at all. And it definitely, you know, never doubt the effect that taking your own energy and your own vibration, your own frequency, the coherence of that into your own hands and working on yourself is actually the best and kind of only way to make a difference for the larger collective field. Right. <laughs> so that's what we're going right. to do first and foremost. And my understanding is, you know, when it comes to critical mass and awakening, it doesn't take everybody waking up. It takes enough to wake up and that that has an exponential effect on raising human consciousness. Um, you know, you may have you know, however many people vibrating at the highest level. We don't need everybody there. You know, we need enough that are at least working on on themselves spiritually and more conscious. Um, but it but all of that has a positive effect for everybody. So Michelle, before we boogie on over to our part two and start really pulling the lid off of the possibility of the past catastrophes and some of the other things I wanted to get your thoughts about where can people find your work? And is there anything you want them to check out first and foremost, whenever they get there? My website's piercing the veil of illusion.com. So if you like the written form, you can go there. YouTube is Michelle Gibson. And if you type in Moore's, my YouTube channel comes right up. And I have uh, Patreon forward slash piercing the veil of illusion as well. And, you know, um, I've, I've done over five years worth of research. And so the more recent research is, is, has really gotten in depth about a lot of different things. And we'll talk about that in part two, especially about the cataclysm and things like that and giant trees which is now on my radar big time as an important part of the grid system and earth until they were taken out by this cataclysm, I think. And, but all of the work has information in it and it is just built on, you know, I just keep building on it. So just check it out, see what jumps out at you. It looks interesting, but, um, I do go into a lot of detail and I've, I'm very thorough in my research and 
because of what I what I'm saying is very different from anything you'll ever hear probably it has to be compelling and so that's a major effort for me is to put it together in a way that makes sense and that you can kind of see it and decide for yourself if it's something that resonates with you or not resonates with me every time that I peek my head into your channel and do my best to catch up I'm always inundated with how many things there are to choose from that you've been putting out you're so prolific and I appreciate you doing the legwork for us so that we don't have to spend the hard time you know hard on the eyes looking at all the different pictures and places and you know you've become a nexus point for so many of us who want to put the puzzle pieces back together and empower ourselves with the truth of our ultimate potential, which is that we could build these amazing architectural wonders that we actually do have a worldwide energy grid system that we in our personal energy field are intrinsically connected to and resonant with. And that no, you're not crazy. Everything in the world is opposite day. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the house of cards is coming crumbling down right in front of our eyes. So thank you so much for being here. Can't wait for part two, Michelle. It's always great. Thanks chance. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here. Hope you enjoyed that convo. It was nice to catch up with Michelle again, you know, after two years, it's possible we may have covered a little bit of the same ground that we talked about before, but I've grown a lot since our last chat and the things that I've been learning in life seem to apply to her theories in a really interesting way. And I am excited about that, but definitely go back and check out hour two. If you're just hearing the free hour is so worth signing up for. I mean, they all are, but in the second hour, I'll just run through some of the things we talked about. First of all, we continued that question of was the world cataclysm mud flood reset scenario engineered on purpose? Engineered through the earth energy grid. Don't know, but seems possible that something could happen because like I started to allude to at the end of hour one, our human biofield when there's distortions in it and the form of beliefs, especially <laughs> Our body can get sick. And in hour two, Michelle gives a pretty good case about the earth energy lines having a lot of deserts and swamps and sick areas in it. So that really fits the whole biofield anatomy taken to the macrocosm from the micro. Then we got into some crazy weaves about the Great Egg Harbor, the Philadelphia Experiment, Collider's AI egregoric creations, the Ong's hat, alternate reality history, the cosmic egg universe B, the great frost of 1740 and other types of engineered catastrophe. We talked about psychic schisms, societal division and the outcome of demonic infestation. But then we discussed the exciting truth of our destiny to reharmonize the realm, how it's much simpler then we're made out to, you know, then it's made out to us to be. Things are not hopeless. We got into how old is the earth really? And then, you know, we just chatted for a while and uh, we got a bit extra on the end of this one. It was more than an hour in part two. 
So if you want to support me on Patreon or Rockfin, you can get the second part of this convo. I don't think that there's anything that, um, you know, you must hear it for, right? Like I'm not trying to sell you it or whatever, but you're supporting me. And if you enjoy this talk, you're going to get more. I think you, uh, you get it. So rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N.com slash interverse or patreon.com slash interverse. Good ways to support. Other things you can do, check out Tipica New Herbs in the show notes is a link to it. Interverse is the coupon code, 10% off. You can get some vitamin C or magnesium from Clive DeCarl, and you can pick up audiobooks narrated by yours truly, the Spirit World book series. Very, very helpful information, especially if you like Michelle's work, you like looking at the historical narrative and poking holes in it. Well, I got a treat for you. If you listen to the Spirit World books, you're going to be able to poke holes in all of the narratives through the lens of mythology and language syncretism that gives you the keys to the system that has been in place as the world empire for a long, long time. And just sort of, you know, like a phoenix burned down and rehashed over and over again. But, (laughs) you know, some things that might be interesting to talk about in the future Um, In context, especially with looking at the Earth energy grid system as the biofield of the Earth, you know, the biofield is the memory of your, you know, your memory is in your biofield. So if you have you ever heard of the stone tape theory, I think this applies, you know, I've heard of this in the past and now I'm starting to realize, whoa, this could have a lot of reality to it. So there's this there's this uh, phenomenon in parapsychology. They call it the stone tape theory which is the speculation that ghosts and hauntings are analogous to tape recordings and that mental impressions during emotional or traumatic events can be projected in the form of energy and recorded onto rocks or other items and replayed under certain conditions. You know, that sounds a little crazy, but once you start to pull in the uh, earth has a biofield component and that the biofield is to do with memory and emotion, all of a sudden that's not so crazy. And we might even have, the explanation for some of the fringe experiences people have in particular, like ghosts and hauntings, because, you know, if there's one thing that I would describe stuck energy in someone's energy field as being like a lot of times is like an echo of their past self. So a ghost, like actually the ghost of their past self, uh, their traumatized self that is haunting them, following them around. I think that that could definitely apply to the ghosts and hauntings that people report in life and forever. So that's fascinating. And we we just got to keep considering, you know, let's push that envelope further with the earth has a biofield. What does that mean? Extrapolating the microcosm of our aura to what it must mean for the earth on the macro. Other things I'd love to talk to Michelle about would be more evidence of indigenous people building the things of their civilization. Um, In particular, interesting to learn more about South America, Mexico, and Australia. They're indigenous. I mean, back to the spirit world books, the the new spirit world, Terminalia. I'm working on the audiobook for that one right now, so it's not finished yet. But hey, go read it. It's worth reading. Then you can listen to it later. The Mexicans, when Spaniards showed up, had all of the Hebrew mythos. They had a great flood. They had the Trinity. They had a lot of the same practices and rites as the Hebrew, the law system, all of it. In fact, I don't think that there are anything, there are any two cultures more similar 
<laughs> allegedly, you know, a lot of that has been lost. We, a lot of the research that the original contact people were doing on the Mexican civilization didn't make it to the light of day, probably locked in a Vatican vault somewhere. I'd also, though, like to talk more about Selfeggio with Michelle, if she had more information, because I'm always in, interested in information on Selfeggio, and she was bringing that up as being a more harmonious type of tuning. And uh, she's talked about this in the past on her videos, but it makes me wonder because our current tuning system, whether or not it's 440 or 432, just the the pattern of notes as they're currently done is called like the solar harmonic system. And what I know, simply put about that with tuning forks anyway, is that the Selfeggio tuning forks, that system of frequencies versus the solar harmonic, well, the Selfeggio is more of a stimulating, enlivening, uplifting, energizing type of thing. And the solar harmonic is more relaxing and sedative. So I don't know, but maybe the reason music is structured in the system that it's structured, the solar harmonic is actually to make people more sedated. <laughs> I don't know, but music is kind of hypnotizing to people. Just questions I have. So would love to learn more about star forts. I've never really fully understood that or covered them in the show. Well, that could be fun. Um, yeah, all of that's in the mix. I had a great time with Michelle. I'll wrap it up now, but if you want to do a tuning with me, shoot me an email, chance at interversepodcast.com. Check out my website, interversepodcast.com slash sound dash healing. If you want more information about what a tuning session entails, been having great, great, great experiences with every client that I work with lately. Of course, I mean, that's been the truth since I started doing this, but hey, it's never been a better time to get tuned, especially now that we've had this talk with Michelle and you can start to conceive of your own aura and energy field as the microcosm of the earth fractal that tuning yourself is healing the whole collective consciousness in a significant way. It's not a joke. So let's get it done and uh, catch you guys off for the next vibrant. Let me know how you're doing out there. Drop us a line in your telegram chat t.me slash interverse podcast chat. If you're not in it, you're missing the most happening portal on the internet where you can connect to the like-minded, harmonious, and healthy co-creators of the new world called the Interverse Audience. Check it out. Get on Telegram if you're not. It's worth it. And all right, I'm out of here. Love you guys. We'll catch you on the next one. Be good wherever you are. Peace. <laughs>